0: In fact, uh, we do need to work with our emotions in order to do a good job at at what we do. So that's what I want to talk about today. How to increase our emotional skills so that we can better serve our clients. And since one of the issues that we've been raising this weekend, particularly on our first day, was uh, how we work with confrontational situations I want to talk today about anger. How how what is anger and how can we work with anger and and change the game somehow for ourselves. And the reason I chose that uh, topic is because uh, I've been, you know, I have a uh, conduct a weekly uh, seminar in Mill Valley and we do different study different texts and take up different topics and, and this month we we've been studying the question of anger. So I've been thinking about it. Uh, anger a lot, and uh, like anything else you decide to to look at seriously over a period of time, it becomes more complicated, more rich, and more interesting the more you look at it and so i've been having that experience uh, considering the, the question of anger, whatever it is you look at, you end up having more respect for and more interest in it in as as you go along and So I've been thinking about the possibility of actually being able to use our anger uh, to help us have a deeper and a clearer sense of who we are and how uh, we can work with our emotions. And this uh, question of anger is... uh, Comes after a long reflection on the whole question uh, of emotions in general. So let me just back up and say one one word about that. Um, you know, the the old conventional wisdom about emotions in our culture, going way back actually to the Greeks, is that there's two different, completely different things. One we call intellect, and the other one we call emotions. And these are completely different from one another, and there's actually a firewall between them, that they don't even affect one another. The intellect is rational, it solves problems, it ascertains truth. Emotion is, is messy, irrational, and it doesn't solve problems, it usually makes problems. This is the old conventional wisdom of our culture. And uh, in our culture, uh, up until fairly recently, the intellect is, of course, masculine. The emotion is feminine. Interestingly, uh, in in Asian culture, this distinction is not made. In, In Buddhism, the word citta could be translated as mind or heart. Either, either translation, in other words, it's a concept that includes both emotion and intellect. And in China and Japan, the same thing. Uh, the word shin, which usually is translated mind, could also be translated heart. It's because it's the same intellect and emotion. It's the, they're both aspects of uh, non-physical reality, but they're not distinguished in any. I mean, there are. Dis- there are distinctions made, but in the fundamental, fundamentally, they're not distinguished. So that's the old, in our culture, that was the old conventional wisdom. It's no longer the case. Uh, many things have changed it. And, and I think maybe you could, if you wanted to put a point on a map, you could say maybe Daniel uh, Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence, was sort of like that was the, since then, you know, nobody can say that, that there's a firewall between these two things. Now we know, and I think we all agree, empirically, that nobody ever has a thought without some emotional component to it, and nobody ever experiences an emotion without a whole series of thoughts that are associated with that emotion. There's really no firewall between these two. And so, in today's universe, in the West, and everywhere in the world, I think, Anyone who doesn't recognize that both emotion and intellect are a necessary part of a successful life or any successful pursuit, anybody who doesn't see that is just simply going to be way less effective and way less happy than those who do see that. It might not be any accident that this is now known at the same time uh, that in this generation, that that women have been included completely, more completely in intellectual and professional life, it may be not a coincidence that these two things, this understanding and this sort of sociological fact, uh, have have come at the same time. So that's so. Let me get then uh, into talking about anger. So uh, the more I have reflected about anger, the more obvious it seems that anger is a key emotion. It's a basic and key emotion. And also that anger can't really be understood without recognizing that it's inextricably connected to many other emotions. It's, it's hard to you know, tease anger apart from other emotions. It's a curious fact that, and I think most of us understand this kind of dynamic, that it's possible that we could actually be angry and not have the experience of being angry, which is an odd thing. Somebody might say, and they might completely mean this, no, 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 I'm not angry, I'm not angry at all. Of course I'm not angry, that didn't make me angry, not at all. And we look at them and we say, Boy, are they angry. <laughs> and we can tell, you know, not that we're mind readers, but we can see in the way that they speak, in the body language, in the details of their behavior, we can see the anger that they might not actually feel like they're experiencing. They don't feel this tremendous and sudden rush of energy, they don't feel their heart pounding. They don't feel their mind racing. They don't feel this tremendous and almost irresistible desire to lash out all these things that are characteristic of anger that we know about. They don't feel these things, and yet we can see, oh boy, they're really angry. So that's odd, you know, that you can be angry and not feel angry. And it's also odd that the converse can be true that we can feel all the associated uh, feelings that go along with anger and not actually be fundamentally angry. In other words, we can, have, we can actually be feeling something else that the anger is covering up, like fear or frustration. Some, some emotion that we have that we are unwilling or unable to face And so we get around facing it by covering it over with anger. But it's actually not the anger that's the root emotion. So that's interesting, too. And the point of this is that you can't really separate anger from other strong emotional states. That anger is an important and maybe a key part of a complex of difficult and uncomfortable emotions that we have. Uh, that arise within us causing patterns of very nasty behaviors quite often and very nasty feelings that have the result of making us suffer a lot and and making the people around us suffer a lot and in the case of our legal work may very well cause us to make mistakes that sometimes could be fairly consequential. So then it becomes a question of practicing with anger, learning how to do our spiritual practice with anger rather than doing what we usually do, which is simply allow ourselves to be victims of our own anger. And to practice uh, with anger is to practice with a lot more honesty and a lot more willingness to really look at our whole complex of negative emotions and to take responsibility for them, to be willing to face them, to move into them, and to have a sense of creativity and play and possibility with our negative emotions. If you read the classical uh, Buddhist discussions of anger, uh, they usually uh, tell you that anger, what you already know, that anger is a, is a very negative uh, and unpleasant emotion. And, and there might be the implication uh, that you shouldn't be angry. Don't be angry. And if you are angry, there might be the implication uh, that you're somehow failing in your spiritual practice. You should be able to overcome anger. If you were really a good you know, Buddhist or a an effective meditator, you would not be feeling anger. You you might think that, because so much is anger viewed in in a negative light. So of course, anger really is a problem. I mean, we all know that. Because the problem is not only is it unpleasant to feel, but the consequences of acting out our anger can be devastating sometimes. Another thing about anger, which is interesting to note, and I, I doubt that anybody here has this problem, but um, anger anger can be quite addictive. It actually can be like, a, like a, uh, you know, an addictive substance. The feeling of anger. You get a rush from anger, you know, and you get used to that and it can be addictive. And, and, and the more self-involved you are and the more concerned you are with getting your way on all occasions, the more addicted you can be to anger because actually it's pretty effective. As we all know, somebody who gets really, really angry a lot can get their way. And that can be, I think, in in this profession, we all probably know, as I say, I'm sure, this could not be true of anybody here, but I'm sure everybody here probably knows somebody in the profession who uses that strategy, probably not consciously, but addictively, to, to get their way. And it does work, actually. But you just have to be slightly less... Self-involved, and you know, have a little, just a little bit of reflective ability to see that this habit, uh, addictive habit of anger, has a kind of corrosive effect on ordinary human relationships. And usually, people who are that way don't have a lot of like really good friends, or even family members that like them that much. <laughs> so you see, well, you know, okay, I'm getting my way, but what is the cost? So you don't have to be too, you know, <coughs> brilliant a person to see maybe that's not such a great idea. Maybe it's better not to get what I want on every occasion in this way, but rather to have more satisfying, more real human relationships. And then the other thing about this addictive quality of anger that we, I think we now know is that it's literally just like if you get addicted to alcohol, it's toxic. <laughs> being addicted to anger is just, actually probably just as toxic, possibly more toxic than the addiction to alcohol. I remember when I was a kid, I had a very close friend, and his dad was uh, addicted to anger, and he would get angry all the time. And you could tell he couldn't help it. You know, he, he would just fly into a rage without, you know, you, you never know when. And, and it was really I mean, we all knew this about him. And when my friend and I were about 10 years old, his father, who was maybe in his early 40s, dropped dead from a heart attack. And probably, I mean, he was killed by anger. So nowadays, uh, in those days, you know, we we didn't know this exactly. Although I think people, even then, felt, yeah, we think maybe Ben died from... Being so angry all the time. Now we really know this. And so when people have that kind of anger, we say, you know, that's a problem. Get some help. Because we know that now. So anger is is literally toxic and its extreme. So it, it is a problem. But uh, possibly there is a way to use anger uh, in, in, a, in a way that's more wholesome than this. Because don't forget, anger is a powerful, emotional energy. And if it could be channeled somehow, if it could be purified somehow, it could be beneficial. If we could figure out how to have some purchase on our anger and how to manage it, so that we didn't become constantly victimized by its irrationality and its destructive power, Somehow we could purify it and channel it. Maybe we could use our anger to, as an ally to help us have the energy you know, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the strength to, to work for the good. That's possible. But that's not what I want to talk about. <laughs> I want to talk about another aspect of anger that I think is really important and really useful. And that's the fact that, that anger is information. Anger tells us who we are. And it tells us what's on our mind and what's in our hearts. It's a bit analogous to uh, physical pain. Physical pain is not something we want and not something pleasant, it's difficult, but physical pain has its positive side. There's a reason why the body has a response of pain. That's because pain is the way the body protects itself and pain is the way that the body indicates something is wrong and it's wrong there. So it's very helpful. You know, when we have a pain, we go to the doctor. We go to the doctor, maybe we're lucky we get fixed. If we didn't have the pain, we wouldn't go. So in that sense, the pain is very useful. And anger can be an indicator in just that same way. Telling us, aha, if you pay attention here, you know that right here is where something needs attention. Right here is where something needs investigation. If we're angry, it's because we have been thwarted, or frustrated, or afraid in some way. And it's possible that we would not know that. We wouldn't understand that unless we felt the sting of our anger, and maybe we need to know that so that we can turn to that area of our experience and we can shift, and that's how we can grow and change. So when you think about it, it's really true, I I believe, that all the things that bother us, that make us afraid, that frustrate us, that that really goad us. All those things tell us that it's the time, it's an opportunity to learn something more, to grow, to change, to be different and and a bigger person. If we're willing to turn toward those things rather than do what we usually do, which is all kinds of distracting and coping mechanisms. Get that out of here. i got to go on. If only we would turn toward it, it's a possibility for us. When we are willing to look in the face, turn toward, it's it's as if there's almost like a physical manifestation. When one of these strong emotions come, right away we turn away. This is a reflex that's very natural to all of us, because it's unpleasant, like a pain. But if we could be mindful enough to not to do that, but instead to turn toward it, we would see things more accurately, we would see them quite differently. If we stopped avoiding our negative emotions and, and face them, stop beating our heads against the wall to get rid of them. Instead pass through them, we would be larger, more inclusive and more compassionate people. So this makes sense, no? And you know, that's true. And so it, it's kind of like, wow, my anger can be a source of growth if I could learn how to practice with it. So how do you practice with anger? One of my favorite Zen texts that I like to chant uh, which I, people that I've ordained as Zen priests, when we have our meetings, we always chant this text together. Instead of, we spent a certain amount of time talking and studying together, but we always chant for a while together. And this is one of the texts we chant. And there's a line, it's called Tore Engis Bodhisattva's Vow. And there's one line in this text that has been personally very important to me over the years. And the line goes this way. Uh, then in each moment's flash of thought... In each moment's flash of thought there will grow a lotus flower. In each moment's flash of thought there will grow a lotus flower and each lotus flower will reveal a Buddha. In every moment's flash of thought there will grow a lotus flower and each lotus flower will reveal a Buddha. And, and the reason why this line is so important to me is because uh, it used to be, I used to practice uh, Zen in Hawaii uh, with a really great Zen teacher who taught there and I would go to Hawaii once a year for a retreat and they would chant this text in the retreat. And one time I was there and I had a big insight about this line that I've never forgotten. And This is a, as a you know, footnote here is that this happens. Maybe it happened to, to many of you, maybe all of you, in this retreat. Somebody said one thing, one phrase that you really understood for yourself and you'll never forget it and it will be a touchstone for you for your life. And this was the case with me with this, with this line. And I realized just, you know, very viscerally how true this is in my experience in that retreat. I said, this is really true. Every thought and every emotion that I have, even the painful ones, even the negative ones, Even the ones that I always thought I really must get rid of and that I don't like myself for having. Everyone was capable of growing a lotus flower. Not only that, it already was a lotus flower. If only I could get to the bottom of it. If only I could see it. If I could get past my habit of aversion or desire and actually see the nature of the emotion or the thought. I would see the lotus petal, and I would see the Buddha on the lotus petal. Every thought, every emotion, without exception, has something valuable and worthwhile to show us. Every thought, every emotion, is something to be grateful for. Because, if you could really see it, really be with it thoroughly, you would see, you would see the Buddha in it. And that's true, also, of our anger. Our anger is, you know, that unpleasant alarm clock that wakes us up. And if we wake up, we can trust our anger. We can (coughs) practice with our anger. And so I've never forgotten that moment of, of insight in that retreat. And it's been with me ever since. And since then, I know that I can trust whatever arises in my mind. Even if it seems really bad, I know if I just stay with it and look a little more deeply, I'll get the message. So I don't really have to complain to myself about myself. I can accept whatever comes with patience and the faith that if I don't allow myself to be pushed around by my thoughts and feelings, I will eventually find the Buddha at the end of the lotus petal. So Thich Nhat Hanh, everybody knows about Thich Nhat Hanh. He has a book, which I recommend, which is called Anger. So you you can get it, I'm sure, anywhere. And I'll kind of uh, try to summarize in my own way uh, what he teaches in that book about how to work with anger so that you can see uh, the Buddha in the anger. In, in uh, one of the versions of Buddhist psychology in which uh, eight consciousnesses are described, eight aspects of mind are described, Uh, The the, the eighth consciousness is called alaya vijnana, which is, uh, that word alaya is usually translated as storehouse consciousness. And to make a long story short, that consciousness is similar, but certainly not identical, to Western concepts of the unconscious. There, There are crucial ways in which it differs, but never mind about that. You get the idea. So, in the alaya, there are latent seeds, take that Han call seeds, or tendencies that don't bother us at all and we don't know they're there until something in the present moment of our living activates them. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a tremendously reactive mode acting out sometimes compulsive and primitive behaviors that surprise us. As if we were in the grip of something beyond our control, which, in fact, we are. So that's what, in, in, in his book, Anger, Thich Nhat Hanh calls these latent uh, seeds, or, or tendencies, he calls them internal formations. And he compares them to sort of toxins that can get lodged in places in the body that need to be you know, massaged and worked with so that they can begin to flow and then run through the body. So he talks about you know, different medicines you can take for the physical toxins you can get massage, and that helps to make things move. And, uh, and, and the method for doing the same thing you know, emotionally so that these internal formations can move and flow and eventually pass through the body and the mind, the method is... The massage, you know, of the heart and mind is mindfulness. Now, if you read this book, Anger, you will be astonished uh, by the tremendous claims that Thich Nhat Hanh makes for the transformative power of mindfulness to, to you know, eliminate intransigent emotional knots not only in people, but between people. And he tells a lot of stories. And Thich Nhat Han, I'm sure, is not lying. So he tells stories about, you know, people who have, you know, 25-year-long, horrible relationships which are transformed after one hour of mindful breathing and conversation. So uh, he's not lying, but it may be that you have to be in his vicinity for these things to work.) <laughs> for these things to work that well. For, the, for those of us who are, are not in his vicinity, or have only occasionally been in his vicinity, I, I warn you, it may take longer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my experience is that it does usually take longer. And, and it's more difficult than he, than he says in, in his book. Like I, I say, well, I, I, we should all have a tignanhan in our house, you know. but. <laughs> In the, case, in the case that we don't, we probably need to admit that it takes a little longer and it, and it may be uh, more difficult than he seems to indicate. At the same time, though, I, I am absolutely sure from my own experience that what he says is, is really true. And I think the reason why we find it so difficult and why it doesn't seem true to us is because, I mean, think about this. Think about how much faith we all place. Not that we think of it this way, but it really is true. How much faith we all place in our intellect and our will. This is what we really have faith in. Because this is what we identify with. And we've been taught from childhood to to say, this is myself. The body which is some sort of a necessary container for my intellect and my will. That's what I am. That's what we go to law school to strengthen and fortify. We're taught to be responsible. We're taught that we are powerful. And so we know that our intellect and our will should be able, if we could only figure out the right way to orient them, They should be able to shape our lives and make us effective human beings and good lawyers. And when this proves not to be the case, (laughs) we don't know what to do. And naturally, we assume it's our fault. We're lacking somehow. We fail to figure out how to apply intellect and will properly. Or if it's not our fault, it's your fault. Somebody else's fault. (laughs) And if it's not their fault, it's the world's fault. The world is screwed up. That's why all my best applications of intellect and will are not working. So we're we're left with this situation. We're either disappointed in ourselves, or in the other guy, or in the world. And the truth is, in all three. We are disappointed in all three. And there's not a whole lot we can do about it, so we begin to build up deep reservoirs of despair and frustration, some of which we may be aware of and many of which we may be unaware of. And we have a view, maybe, that our lives are fundamentally, we're going along okay every day, but something is unacceptable about our lives. Something is also unacceptable about the world we live in. We know, because we can imagine it, that things ought to be different. But we're stuck with the way things are. And now we're in a repeating loop of frustration, which, as I say, can be quite subtle. We, maybe we're even, not even aware of it, but it's there. And there's no way to get out of that loop of frustration and this is enough to make anybody mad. <laughs> maybe, that's why, maybe that's why we're angry. You know, this is enough to make anybody angry. So mindfulness is not intelligence or will. And this is the thing that I think we forget. You know, that we, we, we tend to sort of think of mindfulness as being a function of intelligence and will. But it's not. It's a completely different force. Mindfulness is not ours. It's not us. And it can't be applied and manipulated and shaped by what we want. Thich Nhat Hanh in his book calls it a zone of energy, which I think is pretty good. Mindfulness is a zone of energy. It's a subtle force aspect of consciousness that has its own integrity and its nature is healing. Its its very nature is healing. To be mindful is to uh, relax a little bit the grip of consciousness around an object To let consciousness be more open in relationship to the object in front of it. Another way of saying this is, is to bring a quality of presence to bear in relation to experience. A quality of presence that is, again, by its nature without desire or judgment, but has a nature to be curious and permissive with the object. Mindfulness is like turning on a soft light that illuminates what's there with honesty and sympathy. And this is why... So it's kind of subtle, you know, what, how, to, how, to, how to have mindfulness, how to allow mindfulness to arise and not to suddenly grab hold of it. As soon as we grab hold of it with will and intellect, it's not really mindfulness anymore. It's a kind of a self-consciousness, which we can use... To make things even worse for ourselves, you know? So how do you train yourself to allow that light to just turn on? And that's why we're meditating. I mean, it's easy to forget that that meditation... We, we think of meditation as a pleasant vacation on the cushion. And that's why we deny it to ourselves so often. Who has time? Gee, it's great. I mean, I had a great time at that retreat, but geez, I got things to do. And, <laughs> And, and it would, and, and I really enjoy it, and it's good for me, I know, but who has time for that? But if we understood that, that what we're doing on the cushion is we're training ourselves outside the vicinity of intellect and will in mindfulness, when we practice being aware of the body, returning consciousness to the body, when we practice returning consciousness to the breathing, when we practice being mindful of thoughts and feelings that are arising and passing away. We're training ourselves in a quality of presence that is very, very subtle. I mean, right now, if I ask you, everybody, please bring your attention to your spine as you're listening to to me talk. Switch your attention from whatever it was on and bring it to your spine. You can still hear my words if you're aware of your spine, from the bottom up to your neck. The difference between being aware of your spine and not is pretty subtle. And yet, that little subtle difference, to be mindful, in other words, the difference between being present and not present with something is very subtle. Way more subtle, for example, than the difference between being asleep and being awake. You can tell the difference between, you know, now I'm asleep, oh, I woke up. But the the difference between being present with the body and not being present with the body, you're still there, you know, either way. But the difference is subtle. And so you have to train yourself to notice that difference and be able to apply it. Anytime, not just when you're meditating, but anytime, and you can't really learn how to do that anytime unless you have a regular practice of meditation. But the difference, so to know the difference and be able to apply presence, apply mindfulness, that difference makes a big difference, even though it's subtle. So it's really interesting and powerful fact of life that the most radical changes that you can make in your living depend on these most subtle distinctions of mind that can almost be unnoticeable. So you train in awareness, in presence, on your cushion, and then you get up from your cushion, and you continue the practice of awareness all the time. Awareness of what's inside oneself, but also awareness of what's going on around you. It's not just an inner awareness. It's awareness of everything within the field of consciousness, which includes emotions, thoughts, feelings, sensations, visual things, intuitions, other people, the trees, the sky, everything. So rather than doing what we usually do, which is being entirely absorbed with what we want, or distracted by emotions that we do not even know we're feeling, this is what usually is going on. You know? We're usually, in any moment of consciousness, concerned with, what do I want right now? And a whole lot of our attention is absorbed with emotions we do not even know we're feeling. Instead of that, if we could just pay attention and just be present and be willing and interested to see more widely and more openly just what is happening... Our seeing changes what we experience. And it changes how we behave. And eventually, as in that quote from that mountain climbing guy that James read us, astonishingly enough, it does change what begins to happen to us. And this is the the miraculous part. So Tiktin Han gives us in his book a little plan for how to work with our anger. And it's very similar, if not identical with different words to what James taught us uh, yesterday. R A I N. Here's here's Tiktin Han's version of this. It begins just the same. When we're angry, and this could be true, we could practice the same way with any of the negative emotions or positive emotions for that matter when when we're angry we recognize our anger as anger rather than doing what we usually do which is leaping as quickly as possible over the anger to blame or over the blame to action <laughs> ouch <laughs> instead of doing that <clears throat> we take a step backward We take one step back and we allow ourselves to pay attention to the actual feeling of anger and we recognize it as anger. And it might be a good technique to, you know, if it's available to you because you've trained in it, to touch in with your very good friend, who's always with you and will always be helpful to you. Your breath. Take a step back and breathe. You can do that now. Just see what that's like, to take a step back at any moment and breathe. And allow yourself to look and see what anger feels like, what thoughts and emotions are associated with with it, what feelings are coming and going, just to look and see. And that's all. You don't have to make the anger go away. You don't have to cover up the anger with lots of fluffy love and happiness and gladness and joy if you're angry. Don't try to make it go away with all that, nor nor do you need to cover it up and soften it with guilt (laughs) or justification. Yeah, you're right, I should be angry because, but just be with the anger, study the anger Let the anger be the anger. It's uncomfortable, but once you get used to it, it's it's much better. Then the next step, and this comes directly from the first step, is to embrace the anger. To embrace the anger. To recognize the anger and then to embrace the anger. And, And this... It automatically happens, I think, once you recognize the anger. Because once you recognize anger, you disarm it. The toxicity of the anger is gone. Because the toxicity comes with the aversion to the anger, with the fear of the anger, or sometimes with the addiction to it. Whatever it is that makes us unwilling to experience the anger as it is, that's the toxicity of it. Once we are willing to recognize the anger, the toxicity goes away, and we begin to see the anger as an ally, which leads to the third step, which which is to relieve the anger. At this point, you're calmer. Your mind is not racing. Your blaming and your frustration are, are reduced. And you can actually see that it's a little bit ridiculous and funny, you know, how bent out of shape you are over this thing. That usually is like, why would I be bent out of shape over that? What's the matter? You get a little bit of detachment from it, even maybe a good chuckle. At this point, Thich Nhat Hanh, in this wonderful way of speaking, says, Now you are greeted by the Buddha, who now, from now on will help you in your work with your anger. So what does he mean, you know, now you're greeted by the Buddha? It means that you no longer feel the anger as, as you, as yours, as your fault, as your responsibility. You no longer feel it as confining or, or frustrated, frustrating. You now experience this anger arising in you as something precious that is arising in the world and it just so happens at this point to be arising in the same place where you are. <laughs> And, and that it's arising in that place for some reason that you would be interested to understand. In other words, you have, at this point, expanded yourself to include the Buddha within you, the awakened point of view that we all, every human being, by virtue of being a conscious being, has this that's one of the qualities of consciousness, is that it has this awakened nature, which is usually not available until you expand the container a little bit. And then it becomes available to you and it begins to guide you. And with that guidance comes this, the final stage that he delineates called, which he calls, understanding and transformation. Because then you understand why the anger has arisen in you at that point and you learn something new about yourself and about others. And more or less, what you learn is compassion, sympathy. And so, within yourself or between yourself and another, it turns out that anger is something very poignant and very valuable. Because anger if you practice with it in this way, actually brings you closer, more intimate with yourself and more intimate with others. Anger actually is a force that will deepen intimacy if you know how to practice with it. And if you've ever had the experience of getting angry at a friend and instead of letting that anger fester, have dealt with it with loving kindness with that friend, you know that anger can bring you closer together and make the relationship more beautiful. So this is the this is the possibility, and and I think that uh, this explanation uh, of Tikkun and Hans and and of James's yesterday, which was so similar, is not that hard to understand. But we do have to acknowledge that it's kind of hard to put it into practice because we are so convinced by our usual story, so, so convinced by our habitual sense of what we are, that we again and again go back to that mode of feeling, even though we can see how unworkable it is. Whenever a strong stimulation comes, we go back to that sort of default point. So we have to be patient. This is a process that requires a certain amount of patience and trust that if you continue your practice of meditation, if you continue to reflect and apply yourself uh, to the teachings, if you have allies and friends who encourage this in you and with whom you can talk things over, every day it's going to be a little bit more likely that you'll be able to remember to practice this and also a little uh, warning for those of you who are taking what I'm saying seriously, I hope a few. <laughs> I warn you that the path could lead initially to more anger. Because it's kind of one of those things, you might have to like, things might have to get worse before you're convinced <laughs> that the usual way is it doesn't work. And, and if this happens, you'll be more frustrated than before. Because now you know that it doesn't have to be that way. But it may be that you need that. In other words, it may be you need to get more angry and more frustrated with it, so that you can really learn that, that it doesn't work. I give up. I've got to find another way. So if that should happen to you, I'm just saying, you know, warning you. If that should happen to you, don't worry. It's normal, actually. <laughs> So, you might leave this retreat and say, Oh, wow, you know, I'm way worse off than I was before. <laughs> because uh, I took for granted, you know, now I see how m- much more angry I am than I was before because I didn't know. I mean, I, I had these moments when I would be completely fly off the handle, but now I realize that in between the moments when I completely fly off the handle, there's a lot of moments when I'm more or less pissed off and didn't know it. <laughs> and now I see that, and it's way worse than before. <laughs> So if that happens to you, don't worry. That's pretty normal. And, and you need that, you know, so that you can really get fed up. <laughs> but also, it may not be that way. It might be that working with anger and other difficult emotions might bring us closer to what, uh, where James wanted to take us yesterday, to some more ease, some more happiness. and And, and even some joy, no matter what happens. If we can successfully see through our anger to its root, we'll see that behind the anger always is our sense of concern for others, our basic human goodness, and our simple humanity, which we share with everybody else on the planet. And so we'll make deeper connections with ourselves, with other people, and this is great. Now, all these whole, this whole, since uh, Mary's talk, I've been thinking about something that Mary said that really struck me. And it was a kind of a throwaway line in her talk. She didn't say much about this, but it really struck me. Maybe you noticed, and I'm not sure this is exactly what she said, but she was talking about the bell. She said something like, uh, well really the bell and I are one. But we're not separate. The bell and I are not separate, but conventionally, the bell and I are separate, And I need to know that conventionally the bell and I are separate so that I don't bump into the bell or stub my toe on the bell. But really, the bell and I are one. She said something like that, and it's a little sort of little line, throwaway line. But it, I've been thinking about that ever since. And, and it occurs to me that this point that Mary was making has been the underlying theme of all of our discussions this weekend. On the one hand, we all have, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have beautiful aspirations to generosity, to love, to goodness, to peace, non-harming, and so on. And on the other hand, we don't want to be dummies and stub our toe all the time. And clients hire us To help them not stub their toes. In other words, we have the problem of how to be effective in the real world, the conventional world in which we're all separate from one another. And we want to do this uh, not just for egotistical reasons or to make money. We want to do this because it's our obligation to our clients. And it's also the way that we can help other people deal with the human problems that they bring to us as lawyers. So we have to be skillful in that conventional realm of separation. And on the other hand, we have this need to be kind, to be peaceful, loving, and so on. And as we've heard over and over again in different ways in our conversations, these two things often seem like they're in conflict, completely different things. And it's a sort of a real big conundrum. And this is the conundrum, I think, of being a lawyer. Not only of being a lawyer, but of being a person in this you know, world. And, and I think, as I said yesterday, one of the things I've learned is that, the, that the, the resolution of this conundrum is as various as the variety of the cases we deal with and as the variety of people that we are. But there's always a way, probably not always the perfect way, but a way, often maybe a way that's not without some cost or some difficult choices, nevertheless a way. And then, the next minute, a new conundrum, (laughs) in a different way. So I think that we do learn, over time, how to handle ourselves differently. But also, it never stops being challenging. It never stops being interesting. It's as if these two sides of the conundrum, the so-called real world, it it never fails to make me laugh, you know. The real world. (laughs) What real world are you talking about? The real world, on the one hand, and our spiritual aspiration on the other hand, it may be that these two things are like two different eyes that see two different worlds. And so the trick is to see out of both eyes at once. And to have available to us emotionally and physically and practically excuse me, emotionally and spiritually and practically what we have available to us physically which is binocular vision and with binocular vision just as physical binocular vision you can see things in their depth you have depth <coughs> perception and when we have this binocular vision we can have depth perception and when we have depth depth perception we can move and act creatively and with wisdom and see how beautiful uh, the world is. And one of the things that I come away, and I hope you do too from this weekend with, is the certainty that this is possible even in uh, the situations that we find ourselves in as lawyers in our work. It's possible, and it's doable. It's doable and possible for us, even if Signet Han doesn't live in our house, <coughs> we, can, we can still do this. But realistically, uh, it's going to take some effort and we need some support. So, in the last minute or two, uh, what kind of support do we need? Personally, I think we need to practice sitting meditation or some other form of contemplative practice. more or less daily, I think. So that it's not just something we do once in a while, but it's a part of who we are and what we do. Somebody gave me a note and said, could you give, give us some pointers about how to actually do this? Because it's, it's a good idea and I want to do it, but I can't seem to get myself to do it. How, do, how am I going to do it? Well, um, one thing that I uh, have realized is that um, uh, you can, it's, the, sitting, I think it's best to sit in the morning because before you have a chance to realize you don't have time to do it because <laughs> when the day goes on you, you, you begin to realize oh I don't have time for this, no way you know? but if you catch yourself first thing in the morning before the day starts you don't think that yet you, know? you don't realize that yet so I think it's better to sit in the morning it's, uh, be, and so you have to get up a little early but it doesn't start when you sit in the morning it actually starts the night before the night before when you go to bed, you have to, when you, as you're falling asleep, you set your alarm. And you look at the alarm and you say, yeah, I'm setting my alarm. And then you go to bed. And, and then as you're falling asleep, you say to yourself, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and sit. And then, you, and then you ask yourself. So that's one thing. And then you say to yourself, really? <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to answer yourself. And if and if the answer is, well, not really, <laughs> then you might as well, you know, get out of bed and turn off the alarm and don't kid yourself, because it will be corrosive to your spirit if you really don't mean it, but you set the alarm and you don't get up. So ask yourself, really. And if the answer is, really, and the answer is, yes, really, you will then get up and sit. So I ask you know, literally practice that questioning before you go to bed. And then get up, and my advice is, people don't all do it this way, but this is my favorite way, is get up, put some water on your face, rinse out your mouth, and before you know what you're doing, literally, stumble into your place where you're going to sit and sit down. And you can find online a little meditation, I think they have such things nowadays, meditation alarm clocks that set it for a certain amount of time, and then it goes ding, and then the meditation's over. (laughs) <clears throat> so you don't have to look at the clock and think about it. So that's, that's my advice. and uh, It's really important to do that because the rest of the practice is much more difficult, if not impossible, without some training, just daily training in, in mindfulness. So that's one thing we all need, I think. <clears throat> we also need <clears throat> a group, a support group. So uh, wherever you are, is, is there a group of uh, meditators that you can sit with? And, you know, I think that there are far more meditators and groups of meditators than you would ever imagine. And that wherever you live, I don't care where you live, somewhere nearby there's a group. And ideally, actually, the ideal thing would be, to meet also, instead of, or, or in addition to, <coughs> with a group of lawyers who are meditating so that you could create for yourself what we have in our working group to sit together and then have a discussion about how to apply uh, this to your practice. And so you could experiment with constituting a group like that in your area. So that's the second thing I think we need. And the third thing I think we need is we need some intensive meditation. We need, probably need to go to some retreats once in a while. Retreats like this one, where uh, mm-hmm. law is... Can I drink some of this water? I don't know whose it is. Is that okay? Yes, that was can sure go. Yeah. <laughs> My throat is... So the, the daily sitting <clears throat> is much reinforced by the retreats. So I think, to make up your mind, that once a year, <clears throat> whether it's a long weekend or a longer retreat, that you'll go to a retreat and realize how important that is. And again, you won't have any trouble finding a retreat that will suit your schedule and your needs and your preferences. Spirit Rock has got millions of retreats all the time. If you're from the East, there are retreat centers there. There's IMS and, and other retreats. Mary does retreats. I do retreats. Everybody does retreats. No problem finding retreats. <laughs> so you have to <clears throat> do, a, do a, what we do. You, know? you, you get your calendar, and you put it in your calendar. If you can do a lot of smaller retreats, that's good too. One day retreats are also good. But figure out what's right for you and, and, and make that commitment to yourself. Then there's about 10,000 things you can do every day in your daily in your work. I'll give you a few of my favorites. You've probably heard of these before. I'm sure that There's numerous such lists everywhere. You look online, in books everywhere, and so on. But just something as simple as have an ironclad practice that whenever the phone rings, take it as a meditation bell. As you put out your hand to get the receiver, take a breath. Remind yourself... In a minute, you're going to be encountering a human being, a person like yourself. Remember that when you breathe. And that will change every phone conversation that you have during the day. And that will make a big difference in in the way you, you experience your life. Another thing is whenever you walk, anytime you walk, anywhere, always do walking meditation. Always. It doesn't have to be real slow, but whenever you walk, you know, anytime, like, you know, people say they don't have time for meditation, and then I say, well, well, do you ever go to the bathroom? (laughs) Why don't you walk from your desk to the bathroom mindfully, pay attention, why don't you say, aha, I have to pee, good, mindful. (laughs) Walking to the bathroom is a moment of refreshment, a moment of meditation, even the act of you know, whatever it is you're doing in there is an act of meditation. Oh, what a relief. What a joyous thing. <laughs> Get rid of impurities. Start fresh, you know. Get up, walking back with mindfulness. Why don't you do that? And whenever you park your car, instead of thinking, damn, I'm parked so far away, you know, why don't you park wherever you park, even especially far away on purpose, walking to where you're going, mindfully. It's a pleasure. I sometimes have had different injuries and found it difficult to walk, painful. So it is a joy to walk without pain from one place to another, feeling the body moving, feeling the breathing, feeling the walking. You'd be surprised what a difference this can make. So that's another thing. A third thing, practice with phrases, with slogans your own or something you find when you read a Dharma book. This is an ancient practice in Buddhism. Something like, think twice. Write that down on a little card, put that somewhere where you'll see it, look at it during the day, breathe into it, apply it, and change, you know, like every week or two, a different one. And just keep it creative, keep it alive. And, like I said, you can find these in, you know, in, in your spiritual reading or make them up for yourself. Be creative, think about it, and try to practice these things. So in this way, you continue the meditation all day long and it becomes just part of your life. So those are just a few things, there's millions of those things that you can do. And they don't take any time. People say, I don't have time, this is a great idea, I know, but I just don't have time. This is not true. It's never true. Even the meditation time, I guarantee, and I don't know how to sort of scientifically figure this out, but maybe you could figure out how to do this. I guarantee you that that 20 minutes or half an hour that you spend meditating in the morning will save you one and a half hours during the day. (laughs) Because every day, you spend one and a half hours, at least, cleaning up messes that you have made due to your lack of mindfulness. Whether it's a physical mess because you spilled something and so forth and so on, or whether it's an emotional mess in you or in somebody else, or you know because you forgot where you put a paper, you spend an hour and a half looking for it, or whatever it is, I guarantee you that this, you spend an hour and a half a day cleaning up for your lack of mindfulness. If you spend a half an hour a day being a little more mindful, you'll get it. You have an extra hour. <laughs> so think about that. It really is true. It is, whenever you say to yourself, I just don't have time for spiritual practice. This is not true. You walk to the bathroom anyway. Right? Why don't you walk to the bathroom with some refreshment? You walk from your car to your workplace anyway. Why don't you make that a time for meditation? You're using your mind anyway. Why don't you direct your mind in a certain certain way? It just is not true. Spiritual practice is not exercise, family time, having fun time, work time, intellectual pursuits, spiritual practice. No, spiritual practice is not on that list because spiritual practice doesn't take any time. Spiritual practice is the way you do everything on your list, the spirit with which you do everything on your list. It just isn't true that spiritual practice takes time. And that is another, if spiritual practice is another thing you have to do, you know what I mean? Along with your many other tasks, you're in trouble. And you don't have time for it. It isn't another thing that you have to do. It's the way, the spirit, the mind with which you do the other things. So, that's all. Other than just to say thanks. Uh, this has been, for me, a really fun and a joyful weekend. And uh, I really admire the work that you all are doing. Someone's getting a good <laughs> rest out of this, <laughs> which is okay, except for the snoring is distracting. <laughs> Did he or she wake up? That's okay. Just maybe quietly. Keep sleeping, but don't snore. <laughs> anyway, um, I mean, I have uh, you know, so much admiration. I feel that I have an easy life. You know, I only I only encounter smiling faces. I don't really have to deal with such hard problems as the ones that you deal with. So, you're my heroes. You know, you're taking something on that is really tough. And I really appreciate it. Uh, some years ago, I, I do classes. Uh, we, I, I also work at a Jewish meditation center. And one time we were studying <clears throat> this text called Pirkei Avot, Sayings of the Ancestors. You know? And I'm, we were studying this and we're reading along. And these are like very important texts in Judaism of, of wise sayings and so forth, wise teachings. And we're going along and I'm, li- and I'm realizing oh, about half of these teachings are about legal work. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized that all these great rabbis of the Talmud were all lawyers because they realized that what good are spiritual people if they can't have any way of dealing with practical affairs? And how can anybody who aspires to deal with human beings in practical affairs do that without a spiritual basis. There was no difference between spirituality and the law. And that makes sense, doesn't it? So I admire you for you know, taking up this human conundrum. And uh, I know it's not easy, but it can be done. And I, and I admire you for, for taking it on. So thanks to my colleagues in the working group, and thanks to all of you for, for what you do. And also, should I ever need a good lawyer, I know where to go